Alma Howard. Mary Blair. Alice Davis. Jason, it's good to see you again, brother. I, uh, I'm really excited about this second episode of the Disney 8 and talking about another one of fantastic women that have had a great impact on the Disney company, Disney Corporation. And uh, I think we've got a, a great, great um, topic, a great, a great woman to talk about tonight. Are you, uh, you, you excited? You're uh, you doing well up there in uh, Wisconsin? I know you're getting a little snow. <laughs> yeah, we've got the schools closed already tomorrow. we got I mean, it's so bad that they got the highway shut down. So, uh, you got to love spring in Wisconsin. But you're sounding a little rough over there, buddy. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, I tell you, this is second cold in, in three weeks. I got another one. I think uh, having a kid in kindergarten has really taken a toll more on me than on, on her. So, she's bringing home all those little germs from those little hands and everything. And uh, so, I'm, I'm finding it. We're doing that. We got a little weather going on tonight ourselves. We got a tornado tornado watch uh, going on in effect. So, if you if you're listening to this and you hear some thunder, hear some heavy rain, if you hear me blown away, just Jason, keep going. Take the topic and uh, <laughs> and I'll see you when I see you. But uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's jump right into it uh, tonight. We are excited to talk about a woman who I think is completely different than who we talked about. Someone who we talked about on episode one with Thelma with Thelma Howard. You know that was a name that I would say ninety five percent of people, ninety eight percent of people did not know. They had never interacted with or seen or, or learned about that woman who had such a great impact for over 30 years on the Disney on Disney's life and on his family's life and on the Disney company. And someone who came from tragedy, but in death was able to start a foundation because of the wealth she attained from the Disney company and help children around the world. To now, we go to a woman that... I would say 99% of people know her name, at least know her pen name. Or if they don't know their pen name, they will definitely recognize the character she famously created. No, I I completely agree. So let's get right into it. Tonight, we celebrate the life of P.L. Travers, also known, her birth name, Helen Lyndon Goff. Now, Helen was born in Maryborough, Australia, August 9th, 1899. To be a child with an imagination is one thing. To have a father that is going to allow you to freely be who you want to be is even more of a bonus. 
Now, she was a girl that would always make up stories. She was one that always had a tale, and she was one that always liked to pretend. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, there's stories about her being in the yard, and she would set up her yard into four corners, and she would have different parks and different um, imaginary imaginative stories going on in all four sections of, of her yard. And, I mean, when I was looking through different stories about her when she was young, the family would say that she would pretend that she was a hen. And with being a hen, she would uh, uh, tell the family, you can't come in, I'm laying eggs right now. Right. And she, you know, she, she believed this so much. She believed this imaginative state so much when she was little. And I really think that that carried over later in life when, you know, she brought all these tales to life and really, you know, made ch- all children around the world made their life better through her stories. But it's not like she had the perfect upbringing either. No. As supportive as dad was with her imagination... One, he was a failed businessman. He was a failed banker. Two, he was an alcoholic also. Now, there was nothing ever stated that he was an abusive alcoholic to her or that he was an alcoholic that was detrimental to the family at home. However, being an alcoholic is still unhealthy of an environment, and that leads to perhaps a coping mechanism for her yeah yeah like you were saying jason i mean we we never found anything about her dad you know really his impact on the family as far as you know it's hard when you have those those habits and you know those those detrimental habits especially um but one thing that definitely impacted the family was the tragedy that became that became you know what happened to him when she was seven years old her father did pass away now, keep in mind, guys, that a seven-year-old, which is coincidentally the same age as my son right now, is not only are you a child, but you are an, it's an impressionable age, and your heart is so, so big for the authority figures in your life, like Dad, who was so supportive of her. So that was an incredible tragedy to happen to such a little girl at such a young age. The ramifications of his death meant moves. The family moved to a little resort town in New South Wales, and uh, they moved in with her great aunt, which uh, was named Aunt Sass. And the cool part about Aunt Sass is, if you're listening to our voice, you have seen Aunt Sass on the big screen. Because Aunt Sass would later go on to be a driving force behind Mary Poppins. Now, Travers attended uh, a private school, a private girl's school, Normanhurst, and she was bored with the classes, though. She was bored with the readings they were doing. She was bored with just about everything that was going on. And so, at a young, young age, she actually picked up the book, The History, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Now, take, take that in for a second. I know when I was that age, there is no chance that I'm picking up that book just to read on my own. So, that gives you an idea that she was intellectual she she knew what she wanted at a young age. She wasn't going to settle. And so she started to study. She started to write, started to write short stories, started to write poems. And a lot of those actually were published and in different periodicals that were published through, uh, through different media uh, all over Australia. And one thing that she got into that influenced her move later in life were music and acting. And so when she was 17, she actually 
leaves the small uh, New South Wales and heads to Sydney, Australia, where she tries to take up an acting career. And that is actually the time where she took on the name Pamela Lyndon Travers. And Pamela was a really, really um, popular name right after World War One, And so that Pamela always kind of stuck with her. And so she just created it. She created her own name. So P.L. Travers is here, and P.L. Travers is, uh, is ready to change the world. When she made her way to Australia, she she had pretty good success. I mean, she was in, in Shakespeare plays that toured New South Wales. She would make some pocket change by being a journalist. And she actually was a columnist for the Sydney newspaper for two years. Something that frustrated her, though, was she didn't like the Australian's sense of humor. She, she didn't think that it was... What's an easy way to put this? That it was intellectual enough for what she was trying to do. And so she decided that she wanted to see the world. She wanted to get out of Australia. And what makes more sense to someone who's in to a literary uh, uh, way of life, wanting to, wanting to jump into literary, a literary career, than to move to England. It's the center for, for English culture, for the English language. And so in 1924, she set sail for England. As a result of her travels on the ship heading to England, she was able to write a couple stories and publish articles when she got to London. Yeah, you know, and she, she found different publishers there to where she was able to write for, uh, like, the Irish Statesman. Um, in 1925, she was sending some poems to that. And the editor was actually a poet, and he had a massive, massive influence on her life, and his name was George William Russell. And... His pen name was A.E. And, you know, the one thing about P.L. Travers is she never married all throughout life, but she did have some relationships and friendships that really influenced her life. And Russell was one of those. And when he died in 1935, uh, she it, it, it really set her back. You know, she, she was really upset about it, and she she missed him. Although, you know, because he did have such a, such a big influence. And to fill that void... The one thing she did is she adopted a son. Going back to Russell's death, I want to just read this quote here. She did not just love Russell. She felt as if he was her son. So that's what kind of influence that he really did have on her. So before adopting her son, though, you know, one thing that happened to PL was she uh, suffered an, an, an illness, a lung illness, actually. And she took some time off of writing, and she went and lived with a roommate in the Sussex region of, uh, of England. And, you know, the one thing that, that set her back is probably the one thing that made her uh, the most famous. Because, because of this illness, she was at the, uh, the cottage that she was, she was staying at with her roommate when two children were visiting. And she concocted this story about a nanny... And the nanny brings all of her belongings in a carpet bag. She has an umbrella with a parrot's head. And this the, the, the nanny, her name is Mary Poppins. So off the top of her head, she starts to come up with this. And it wasn't just she come up with the name and she came up with the look. She came up with a lot more about this story. The story grew into the book, Mary Poppins. And coincidentally, the illustrator of the book was Mary Shepard. And I did not know this, but it was the daughter of the original illustrator of Winnie the yeah, Pooh. Yeah. And this book was published in 1934. Now, 
going back to all her ideas about the carpet bag and the umbrella and all this good stuff, this all actually goes back to her aunt. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we kind of glanced over it earlier. Aunt Sass, whenever whenever they came to live with Aunt Sass, right after the death of her father, the family was kind of in shambles. You know, they needed somebody. And Aunt Sass was that hard-nosed, loving, you know, uh, uh, person who kept everything in order, kept everyone on their toes, made sure everything was done. And, um, you know, she did it in a loving way, but it was still, it was more regimented. You know what I mean? Like, it was more of a... You're going to do this. This is why we do this. You know, this is how this house runs. And she really put that family back together. Uh, Aunt Sass did. Played a huge, huge role. And so, you know, uh, the one thing that PL was always able to do with all of her books was to combine and meld the 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 fantasy with the with the reality. You know, take take a take a real place with real ideas and with real problems, but to mask it with a fantasy overlay of whimsical, um, fun, you know, uh, uh, um, characters. And that, you know, Aunt Sass never once would have been the Mary Poppins we know today. And the one thing with Travers is she was very, very successful. I mean, right, Mary, Mary Poppins, when it was released, was an instant success, which is hard to do with just about anything you do, you know. And especially... You know, you're getting into the mid 1930s. You're you're ramping up to World War II, and I think that the uh, the timing of this book and the timing of Mary Poppins comes back in 1935, and the state of the world gave children a place to escape. But with Mary Poppins comes back in 1935, like you just mentioned, um, with those two books, it was a success because there was more to it than just a children's book. You had a little bit of mythology, but yet you had uh, deeper patterns of fantasy that were adult-orientated also, under the radar. So there are a lot of factors and variables that were going right for this, this series to be successful from the start, like you mentioned. Yeah, and, you know, and, and one of the things that P.L. Travers said, and one time she was talking to the New York Times, and I quote when she says, The ideas I had as a child move about in me now. Sorrow lies like a heartbeat behind everything I have written. And the one thing I didn't know about P.L., I knew of the first two books. I didn't know of the other books. Did you? Not only did I not know of the other books, I was very surprised that there was a whole series of Mary Poppins books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that caught me off guard. I mean, you're looking, you've got, after the first two, Mary Poppins, and then Mary Poppins comes back in 1935. Then you go to... Mary Poppins opens the door in 1944. You're talking that is right at the end of World War II. You know, that's that, that book's right. coming out. Mary Poppins in the Park in 1952. Mary Poppins from A to Z in 62. Mary Poppins in Cherry Tree Lane in 82. And then Mary Poppins in the House Next Door in 89. So you're talking a span of over 55 years, you know, 50, that she's she's been writing about this character. And the coolest part I, I found out was... All of those books, not just the first one, not just the second one, but all books were illustrated by Shepard. Yeah. yeah, and they're all all connected to the original storyline. You know, you know, I'm going to have to go to Best Buy tomorrow, and, or Best Buy to Barnes & Noble tomorrow, and pick up some of these books. We have the first two, and I think I was, I was telling you guys in, in one of our episodes that one of the cool things we did was we purchased the, uh, the first one, and then Mary Poppins comes back in, um, 
in, in the UK pavilion in Epcot. And then we had the Mary Poppins character sign those books to Riley, to our daughter. And uh, oh, so I'm going to have to pick up those other ones. And maybe that's something good that Riley and I can sit down at night and, uh, and read. Travers also authored uh, many other books after that, such as Mary Poppins in the Kitchen, a cookery book with a story in 1975. And she had a lot of other books and pursued many interests. After World War II started, Travers began working with Britain's Ministry of Information. And she headed over to the United States, and she wrote a young adult novel. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And uh, it's called I Go by Sea, I Go by Land. Uh, it was in 1941, so we're talking about right in the heart of World War II. And, uh, you know, the book was about an 11-year-old girl who was evacuated from England during the war. And this is fascinating to me because, you know, P.L. Travers, you know, Helen Goff is, uh, she, although she wasn't evacuated, as a young child, she was forced to move because of a tragedy. And so I think she would probably have some direct emotional pull on how that would feel to an 11-year-old. And she used, uh, you know, she, she used those feelings to, uh, to impact, I'm sure, many, many young uh, boys and girls that were going through the similar situation during the war. So I think that's fair. I'm, I'm going to have to pick that book up, too. So pretty much I'm just going to have to pick up her full collection at some point. We've talked a lot about her younger, uh, younger years, her, her, her years leading up to the war and the birth of Mary Poppins. But let's get into what I think, if people are listening right now, what they want to hear about and what they want to learn about. And that is her relationship with Walt Disney and the Walt Disney Company and how Mary Poppins came to, uh, went from inside of her mind to the book and then onto the silver screen. And when she sold those rights in 1959 to Walt, changed the Walt Disney Company forever and changed our lives forever as being Disney fans. But it wasn't in 1959 that this all came to, came to uh, 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 all together. It started years and years before that. Actually, it started in 1945. And we know Walt is a visionary. He, he knew this was going to be a fantastic film on the big screen. And he wanted to get his hands on it. He wanted Disney Corps to put this movie out, okay? Now, he wooed her with gifts, continued letters... And it was almost, I kind of was reading it as a borderline harassment to get her to work with him and Mary Poppins. He wanted this that bad. Yeah, it was an obsession. I mean, he, he learned about Mary Poppins through his daughters. His daughters were reading the book, and he, he learned about, um, he, he saw the joy in their face. Now, if there's one thing Walt Disney knows is when a child is happy, he knows that there is money behind that there's success behind that if you if you pursue it and so he promised his daughters that he would pursue this and he did 14 years going after this and he finally was able to do it but the one thing that pl was absolutely adamant about was that the film had to be live action and it was not animated in the least and of course we know that that's not how it uh, it turned out but it took a lot of persuasion from disney for that to happen and travers actually uh, after after signing over the rights, comes over to the United States to take part in the making of, of Mary Poppins. Yeah, stipulations. When you sell a movie rights to a, a, a producer, you don't get stipulations. You lose all your rights to that book, that storyline. And she was very adamant that her conditions were not only met, but she was going to be hands-on with the making of this movie. 
which was which was a first. Yeah, Disney had never done that. Disney Disney had never allowed someone else. You know, after he lost the rights to Oswald, the Lucky Rabbit, and um, some of his other early work, Walt had always said that he's never going to have something that he doesn't have full control over. And that tells you how much he really wanted this this script. He really wanted to produce this movie with the fact that he put up with a lot. And when she showed up, she was hard to deal with. And, you know, through the making of the movie, of course, we we learned that she wasn't happy with some of the songs. She wasn't happy with the casting. Uh, There's a great story about Julie Andrews sending her a letter later in life to where she said, uh, you know, I think that Dick Van Dyke's casting of Bert was fantastic. And we and we we know later in life that she thought Bert was hideous. She thought that Dick Van Dyke has Bert, which, you know, to me now is is crazy talk because whenever I see see those characters, I can't imagine anyone else playing those characters. And, you know, throughout throughout the 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 the, the making of the movie and the writing of the songs by the Sherman brothers, you know, two of the most famous Disney songwriters to ever ever take uh take you know their music and put it to film and the fact that she wasn't happy with any of it just told you how much she did not want the movie to be disnified if you know if if i if i try to think of a better way to put this she didn't want the the uh happy songs birds chirping you know uh princess animated she didn't want that because if we go back to aunt sass that's not who aunt sass was she was not that character now, Walt Disney offered her a respectable sum of money for this book. She was offered $100,000 for the book and 5% of profits, and the film grossed $75 million. Yeah, yeah, it's in- I mean, that's insane. You're talking about, uh, in, you know, at a time when $75 million is not what $75 million is today. Uh, that's a lot of money. It made her a very, very rich woman. You know, she already had money. Um, from the first books, but that money had been dwindling, and she was she was coming down towards the end of the money that she had, uh, because her other books weren't quite as successful as 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 the first ones. So that that push of, of finances from Disney made her a wealthy woman for the rest of her life. But let's talk about something fun that happened because of Mary Poppins being remade. Is Disney puts the money he makes from Mary Poppins into the purchase of land in Central Florida, which leads to the the uh, the birth of Walt Disney World, which we all you know love. That's why we're all here. And uh, it, it's funny hearing stories about how P.L. Travers, you know, she really grew to detest this movie later in life. Like she she, <laughs> she really hated it. And there was a story about her crying in a the, crying in the theater during the premiere, and her actually voicing her displeasure in the movie. And I think it's funny how you know let's let's get into talking about. Now, the, the, the movie that was made to tell the story of the relationship between Disney and P.L. Travers, Saving Mr. Banks, that came out. And, of course, this is a Disney movie. It is coming from the Disney perspective. And I like how they changed in that movie her reaction to more of an emotional one instead of an upset one, uh, which, is, which is not true. You know, that movie has, has some truths in it. That's for sure. Um, Walt never flew to England to uh, to persuade her to sign the rights to him. That was all done over 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 you know mail and, and contact and things like that. Uh, he never actually flew there. 
Um, but a lot of it is true. When you look at the relationship you have with her father, that's a great representation of her relationship with her father when she was little. Jason, have you seen that movie? I have not. I have. It oh, is, it's fantastic! It's, it's really good. It's really, really good. I, I really enjoy. I mean, listen, you're looking at a Walt Disney played by the fantastic Tom Hanks. I mean, the guy can play anything. He does a great Walt Disney, and you get to see Disneyland and and the uh, in in early. 1960s and, and it's just it's great it's fantastic it's a great representation but they did take some liberty with the storyline but one cool thing that came out of it is you know she didn't like the music supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is now part of the english language in the english dictionary because of this movie so you can actually look that word up and uh and see it so a lot of cool things that come out of this movie i would be curious <laughs> to go down her emotional response after she witnessed, you know, after she watched the movie for the first time, because when it was over with, the theater erupted into a standing ovation. It was a mm-hmm. huge, huge hit. And for her to have all this distaste, because she despised the penguin scene. Yeah, yeah just, she did. Just despised it. And, but there was no, there was no getting away with the fact she created something that everybody around is loving it. And that goes to how, how much of a stickler she was where none of that mattered because she wanted to like it. It didn't matter if you didn't like it. I wanted, you know, her as the, the author wanted to like it. Definitely shined a different perspective on how sticky her character really was. Yeah, I mean, she... Look, I'm, I'm so happy that the movie was made. I think it's one of the most iconic movies that's ever ever been on film. And if you haven't seen Mary Poppins, go see it. It's it's a movie that you can take the entire family to, and there's something for everyone in the movie. I just think that character was so near and dear to her because she had such heartache, and she respected Aunt Sass so much that she didn't like seeing her turned into a gimmick, as she would say. And so it would be interesting to see or hear her her response to seeing, you know, the characters in the parks, things like that. I mean, she would probably hate that. But she has to be happy, you know, at some point with the fact that she's bringing joy to so many people. You know, you would think that has to happen. Um, But like we were saying, I mean, she, it seemed like every decade she grew more and more and more distaste for the movie, for what happened. I mean, she would write in letters that, you know, how much she hated this, this, this scene how much she hated this one song and things like that. And uh, and that goes all the way up to her death. Now, before she died, she actually did plan on a goodbye Mary Poppins. And she was going to have Mary Poppins die, essentially. There was such an outcry from letters uh, and children that trying to persuade her not to do this with Mary Poppins that she actually chose not to write it. So in the end, maybe she did really care about making people happy and making something that they would enjoy. Yeah, there had to have been some somewhere inside of her, I'm sure, that that, that had something to uh, something to do with it for sure. In 1977, she was given the Order of the British Empire. And throughout her life, especially in her elderly years, she would have interviewers approach her and, and, and give interviews, and she was still reluctant on giving 
details of her own life. I mean, it was to her, it was private. That was hers. She didn't like to to give information out like that. And we didn't find out a lot of this stuff until after her death. And she died in 1996 at the age of 96. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, she brought so much joy to the world, although she had unhappiness about certain aspects of her life. Uh, I think that this is one person who we can say definitely changed the Disney company, definitely impacted the Disney company, because without her, without Mary Poppins, without her story, without the making of the movie, we don't have Walt Disney World sitting where it is today. Uh, the, this story funded Walt Disney World, fun, funded the land Walt Disney World sits on. And so with that, we say thank you, P.L. Travers. Thank you, Helen Goff, for your impact on the Disney company. And, and this week, you are one of the most influential women of the Disney age. We don't just want to concentrate on the past with this, though, too. We want to concentrate on the present and the future of the Disney company. And so we want to take some time to talk about some of the great influential women that are in the Disney company right now. And this week, we're talking about Kathy Mangum. And Kathy got her start working at Disneyland Park while she was a student at Cal State uh, University. And now she's actually the regional executive for Walt Disney Imagineering. I mean, she is in charge of all the oversight of the Walt Disney World Resort, Disney Cruise Line, Disneyland Paris. And I don't know if any of you hell have been to uh, Disney's California Adventure and you've walked down the main street of Radiator Springs and you've ridden uh, all those fantastic attractions in Cars Land, but you have uh, one person, you have someone to thank for that, it's Kathy. Kathy Mangum is an amazing inspiration to so many. She has also overseen the enhancements of the Seas with Nemo friends at, at Epcot. And, uh, and she's actually provided creative uh, direction for the water parks, Typhoon Lagoon, and Blizzard Beach. So she has had her hands on so many fantastic things that we love. So, Kathy, we say thank you for what you do for the Disney Company. Thank you for what you do for us. And, uh, and we uh, honor you this week as one of the most influential women of the Disney 8. Well, Jason, I had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun talking about uh, P.L. Travers and, and her impact. And I don't know about you, but I... I learned more and more than I ever thought I could. You know, some of these people are just such an inspiration when you look at their life. And I think one thing that we're getting to know about these people is, look, don't let hardship knock you down. You know, these people have been through struggle after struggle, but they still find success. And it's, it, it, it's never too late. You can always change your path. You can always find, uh, find happiness in what you're doing. I agree. All right, buddy. Well, I've had a lot of fun tonight. You need to get some rest. I know you're looking a little tired with all that snow up there. And so until next time, next week, we'll be seeing you for another edition of the Disney 8. Good night, bud. Good night.